It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. As Travis Scott took the stage at his sold-out concert in Houston last Friday, the crowd pushed forward toward the stage and the crush began. It took only 20 minutes for the police to radio about the unfolding tragedy, and Scott paused briefly after noticing an ambulance in the crowd. Moments later, he asked fans to put up a middle finger if they were okay. Scott resumed his performance until his set was over, despite pleas from the crowd. Nine people were killed and dozens were injured. Joining me is Rachel Fizet, a criminal defense attorney with Zweibach, Fizet, and Coleman. Rachel, this isn't the first time Scott has faced legal action over his concerts. Are criminal charges possible here? I think there needs to be an incredibly massive investigation that encompasses Travis Scott, Live Nation, the venue, the security team, and all members of the crowd to determine what happened. So what they'll be looking for in that investigation, particularly as it relates to Scott's role, is if he encouraged the conduct that led to the deaths and the injuries. And if he did encourage it in some way, if that encouragement rises to a criminal act in Texas. Scott was arrested twice when he encouraged fans at concerts in Chicago in 2015 and Arkansas in 2017 to ignore security measures and rush the stage. He pleaded guilty to public disorder charges both times. That's a slap on the wrist. Is that what's likely to happen here? I think the public disorder charges are different than what would rise to the level of a felony, which would be that Scott acted in a way that he knew he was creating an unjustifiable risk given the circumstances. And so if he was creating an unjustifiable risk to his crowd, that would be a felony in Texas. As to disorderly conduct, I think that was a plea deal. And so it was down from what maybe law enforcement thought they could charge him with. How does it play in the fact that 
this seems to be part of what he does. Fans come expecting, I suppose, this kind of raucous environment. So the way it plays in and the way negligence always works has to do with foreseeability. And so it really has to do with his state of mind. And that's where his priors come in because he already knows that there's been injuries at past concerts and that he has been found responsible for inciting some of those safety breaches. So it really puts him on maybe higher alert than somebody who has not been charged. So it makes this act more foreseeable. And that's really how a negligence determination, both for civil liability and for criminal liability, plays out. Because nothing was intentional. He didn't intentionally kill anyone. It's whether he acted in a way where he was putting these people at risk. Also, the Houston police chief said he met with Scott and his head of security prior to the event to express his concerns about safety. So that's putting him on notice, isn't it? Absolutely. All of these things put him on notice. He's getting sued by a prior concert goer that was paralyzed at one of his shows. It would be hard to say that safety concerns for, frankly, all parties involved, including the venue, including the security team, including the promoter, including everyone. Safety concerns, people were on notice of them. They should have been front of mind. Based on past events, particularly at Travis Scott concerts, this should have been foreseeable. And so what was done to prevent it now becomes the question. Let's discuss the civil lawsuits that are piling up. They're being filed against Scott, the events, promoters, and management, including Live Nation, basically for negligence. What would have to be proven if the cases went to a jury? So these kinds of determinations go back to the same analysis, what was foreseeable and what was done in advance and during the show to take the correct measures for the safety of the crowd. And as to the venue and the security and all the people setting up in advance, were those routes in play? Did they have safety measures? Did they have emergency measures? Did they have the right amount of people in the space? What was done in advance to make sure the crowd was safe? And there are a lot of reports that even before Travis Scott came on that people were passing out and basically the safety of the show was already in jeopardy. And all of that should be foreseeable to those in management. Did they sell too many tickets? Did they let too many people in? All of this is going to be closely investigated. And these civil suits will continue to pop up because there were so many injuries and so many deaths. And Live Nation has already been linked to hundreds of deaths and injuries in the past 15 years. According to the Houston Chronicle, they've been connected to about 200 deaths and at least 750 injuries since 2006. Does that come in in a trial? It all comes in. I mean, of course, it matters what kinds of deaths those were. Were they related to crowd management? What kinds of venues that those deaths and injuries took place what is standard in the industry is our live nations numbers better than other company numbers as it relates to concert injuries and deaths 
all of that will be closely looked at. The concerts are a high-risk business in some ways, and so there will always be some sort of injury or death, unfortunately, associated with live events, with large crowds. So it just comes into play. What were they doing to react to each of these possible safety issues and safety management issues uh, for each of their events? What were they doing in response to each of the other incidents? Or do they know things and they're specifically not addressing them because it would cost too much money or they couldn't promote the show in the way they wanted? So it, it is a large scale investigation and discovery process as it relates to these civil lawsuits. There are allegations that people begged the security guards that were hired by Live Nation for help, but were ignored. So it's wondering what they could have done, why they weren't doing anything. Perhaps the security guard could not help one person because he had to, if he left to help one person, 50 other people would be in jeopardy. All of this will come down to a lot of witness accounts. There will be many, many witness accounts. There's video footage, concert goers, security guards, the people that put the plans in place. This is a very large uh, legal issue and issues. This, this will be going on for years. Do you know of any other cases like this? I was able to find Gwen Stefani was sued by a concert goer who was injured at one of her concerts, and she was sued along with Live Nation. And I believe the judge dismissed Live Nation from that suit, but said that uh, Gwen Stefani could be held liable. This kind of issue uh, with this mass amount of casualties and injuries is new for our country. There's been soccer stampedes in other countries where over 100 members of a crowd have died as a result. But those laws are different. Tort laws are different. And that's what a lot of the civil liability will absolutely hang on. So there's not full precedent for this kind of mass. There's been a lot of talk about whether there were drugs, and it's a concert, so if there are drugs <laughs> involved, could that be used against the plaintiffs? Right. So what will happen is if any of these cases make it to trial, what will happen is the venue will say it was the concert goer's fault, that there was, and these are, this is part of the investigation. What was the concert were doing him or herself to cause the injury were they intoxicated were there drugs were they inciting violence were were they acting in a dangerous way and if they were how much of the responsibility for their own injury should they take i think the one thing that is important here as it relates to cr possible criminal charges and the civil liability is under Texas law that if somebody is found to have committed a, a felony and they are one of many defendants, they can be on the hook for everything. So I think that what will happen is the criminal issues may play out 
if there are any charges made, that may come first before the civil issues conclude uh, if anyone is charged with a crime. Thanks so much, Rachel. That's Rachel Fizet, managing partner of Zweibach, Fizet, and Coleman. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Thanksgiving and Christmas may look a little different this year as the supply chain crisis threatens our holiday cheer. From toys to books to Christmas trees, disruptions are making things harder to find and much more expensive, something President Joe Biden has acknowledged. COVID-19 has stretched the global supply chains like never before, and suddenly... When you go to order a pair of sneakers or a bicycle or Christmas presents for the family, you're met with higher prices and long delays or they say they just don't have any at all. So what's the legal fallout? Here to answer that question is Brian Gardner, a partner at Winston & Strong. Describe the different kinds of legal fallout we're likely to see from this crunch on the supply chain. We've really got a perfect storm here in terms of the fragility of the supply chain and then the disruption that hit it. In terms of disputes, you've got two sort of areas. You could have shippers. When I say shippers, I mean consumers of services like Walmart or Costco, right? Carriers being ocean carriers like Maersk. I think you could see service contract breach actions brought by shippers against the carriers. And I think also 
really the big question for him is going to be the Federal Maritime Commission and whether folks really start to ramp up complaints being filed with the Federal Maritime Commission for violation of the Shipping Act, or whether the Bureau of Enforcement, which is sort of like the prosecutorial arm of the commission, whether they begin to take action on their own as they've telegraphed they're going to do. Separately from those things, case-by-case disputes, I think there's a big question as to whether legislative action is going to happen. And the Ocean Shipping Reform Act is one such piece of legislation that's been introduced in the House and is quickly gathering sponsors. With something like this, COVID, which no one anticipated, where is the blame to be placed? (laughs) Well, it's going to be placed everywhere, right? So certainly folks are looking at carriers and saying the carriers are violating the Shipping Act or service contracts. There's a couple of different things in play. If you're a shipper, a furniture importer on the West Coast, and you're a small shipper and you're not getting the capacity that the box carriers, you know, the container carriers promised you, you will blame them for violating your contract. In terms of delay, if goods arrive late because they got rolled from one vessel to another, almost all carrier contracts do not promise that the goods will arrive at any particular time for any particular purpose or to meet any deadline under most bills of lading and contracts. So there's blame on the carriers for delay or for not honoring commitments. There's blame on the truckers, the drayage truckers who move the boxes from the yard to inland points for not responding, not having the capacity. There's blame for chassis providers, which is the truck chassis that goes underneath the box. There's simply not enough to go around or they're in the wrong place. If there's no contractual promise that goods will arrive on time, how do you sue the carriers if you do eventually get the goods? I think anybody bringing a suit, a contractual suit against the carrier for having goods that don't arrive on time is going to have a difficult time if they have the standard contract. I think you could bring a Shipping Act cause of action. The Shipping Act makes unlawful unreasonable practices, and it makes unlawful discrimination against shippers. So, for example, if if a carrier is providing all the good service, the speed, the capacity to a large shipper and discriminate against small shippers, that could potentially be a violation of the act and be actionable. Where I'm seeing a lot of traction in this area is with demerge and detention charges. And this is a big issue and a friction point in the community. Demerge is the charge that the container carrier, the ocean carrier, charges the shipper, say Walmart, for not picking up their container on time at the yard. It sits there too long. They get, say, 10 days of free time, And if it doesn't get picked up because it's too congested, they just can't get there, whatever the reason. They can't find a trucker. The truckers are too busy. They can't get in. It's too crowded. It's blocked in. They get charged X dollars per day. And if they don't return that container back to where it's supposed to go, they get charged another fee, Y dollars per day. The first one is demurrage, is the cost of not picking up the container on time, and detention is the cost of not returning it on time. That mounts into the millions or tens of millions of dollars, particularly in this environment where there's so much congestion and problems, and the carriers are charging that. And often the yard charges the carrier, and the carrier may mark it up and charges the shipper. And so not only are the goods not arriving on time, but then the shippers, you know, you're at Walmarts and so forth, are being stuck with these huge bills for what they view as poor service. And then on top of that, the ocean carriers are saying, well, if you really wanted it to get to a certain place at a particular time, you can buy one of our premium end-to-end products. You know, it's kind of like we're all familiar with the airlines, and, you know, we were buying airline seats, and we thought we were supposed to get a seat to go from A to B at a particular time. And now the airlines are telling us, well, you know, if you really want to get there on time, you really want to get a seat, you really want to have a place to put your carry-ons, you can pay extra. And, mm-hmm. you know, people don't receive that well, and shippers are the same way with these premium products. Are shippers suing at this point? So, yes, some. Um, There have been some actions filed with the Federal Maritime Commission, far fewer than we would expect. And the real reason that we've seen and that the commission themselves have identified is a fear of retaliation. 
the the ocean carriers it's almost all collected in say nine or ten container carriers all, all the all the capacity and then they in turn are organized into three um, shipping conferences and you know it, in many ways it's an oligopoly and you know the antitrust laws they, they have antitrust immunity uh, in the industry in exchange for being monitored by the commission so people are just afraid to file is, is what we've seen a lot I think a lot of things are being settled offline some people have filed there was a um, a furniture importer called MCS Industries filed a suit against Costco, China Ocean Shipping, uh, with the commission, and that just settled recently. I, I know that there are others in the pipeline as well. So in this chain, who is likely to get sued if Walmart doesn't get the products that it needs? If Walmart doesn't get the products because they're not getting the capacity that was contractually promised to them by the ocean carrier, the ocean carrier will get sued. If it's because their truckers don't pick up the goods, there may be a breach of contract action against the trucker. But I think what's really going to happen is that the, the Christmas goods or you know whatever it's, it is that's at issue, right? We're all talking about Christmas presents now. They're just going to be late. There's going to be fewer of them. And ultimately, the shipping public and the consumer will pay the price in terms of less quality. And people are going to start rethinking their 7,000-mile supply chain. People are going to start rethinking, particularly in an era of great power competition, whether they want to have a sole source with China 7,000 miles away. You add to that just-in-time inventory, you know, which, which uh, everybody learned from the Japanese starting in the 80s. You've got a really fragile situation, and all it takes is the beating of a butterfly's wings for the whole thing to go to hell. Are there force majeure provisions in these contracts that COVID would fall under? So maybe right? I mean, you could try. Um, you know, we maritime lawyers have been writing pretty good contracts for ocean carriers for a long time, and they're pretty, they're pretty solid. And, uh, you know, I would say that probably somebody trying to bring a force majeure uh, claim or trying to assert force majeure here uh, is going to have a hard time. Um, you know, first of all, I mean, the ocean carriers are disclaiming delay, right, in the contract. And to claim force majeure here, is going to be difficult because it's so foreseeable. I mean, the fact that you and I are sitting here talking about this shows how foreseeable, you know, it really is. So I don't think a force majeure claim is going to lie. What would an action on a service contract look like? So there's a contract, right? So you've got a service contract. So carriers can operate on a tariff, which is basically like a posted bill of prices. And then they have a bill of lading, which is their contract of carriage. And the tariff sets out the terms and includes the bill. And that, that's got all the protective language about we don't, we don't pay for delays and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, that could be a breach action for you know, not providing the quality. Most service contracts are just that, right? They, they promise a certain amount of quality at a certain rate. They can deviate from their posted tariff rate. They can, they can charge somebody less in exchange, for example, for getting more volume. Because carriers are typically chasing volume as opposed to running away from it like they are now. So there's a potentially contract action there, but those contract actions lie in courts. They don't lie before the Federal Maritime Commission. And as I said, I, don't, I, I think, at least with respect to the ocean carriers, and we could talk about the truckers separately, but at least with respect to the ocean carriers, what are you going to assume for? If it's not a breach of the commitment, delay is going to be an uphill battle. But at the commission, you can sue for unreasonable practices and discrimination. And demerging detention, I think, is going to be a big thing, as I mentioned earlier. You know, the commission is very focused on this. The Ocean Shipping Reform Act, the piece of legislation I mentioned, is also focused on this. 
Um, the carriers have these opaque, many of them, not all of them, that have these very opaque billing practices with respect to demerge and detention. And it's not clear, you know, to the shippers, to the, to the Walmarts, when they're going to get hit with these charges. And so that that is an unreasonable practice. If, the, if they're getting whacked with these charges for boxes that they couldn't pick up or they couldn't return, it was beyond their control, it's an unreasonable practice, and they can get sued for that. It has to promote freight fluidity. Demerge charges, the reason they're justified is because they expedite the movement of the boxes. They get them out of the port. They get them back. They keep things moving. But if they're not doing that because you just can't get there, you can't get the container because there's too much congestion, how does that promote freight, freight fluidity? So you anticipate seeing some action there in that area? Yeah. Um, and I think you'll see some action by the Bureau of Enforcement as well. If things don't abate, if we don't see money shifting to services and the pressure keeps up on the supply chain, I think we're going to see a more muscular, a more robust Federal Maritime Commission. They've already done done a lot. I mean, they've they've done a lot of inquiries. Commissioner Dye's been focused on fact finding 29. They they uh, promulgated an interpretive rule regarding demerge and detention that laid down the law about this whole freight fluidity principle. And so they've they put down the markers. They've been conducting investigations, submitting information requests, you know, basically subpoenas to the carriers. So they're watching, they're waiting, and they're getting ready. There hasn't been a lot of activity yet in the docket, but, you know, I think that they will because, as I mentioned, there's a lot of shipper, you know, Walmart, you know, ocean, ocean service consumer fear of that they will be discriminated against, which, of course, would be a violation of the Shipping Act, but nevertheless, they, they're f- afraid that if they come out against the ocean carriers, they won't get any any service at all. You know, so and and also, you know, it's very diffuse. The shippers are very diffuse, right? I mean, they've got there's so many of them compared to the nine or ten carriers in three conferences, and it's factually very challenging. You know, because you, you, they might have one one container here, one container there. And they're so, you know, each container is a different delay period. It's, you know, each one is a different move. And so, you know, unless you take a consolidated entity like the Bureau of Enforcement that's going to sort of stand up for everybody, there's a lower incentive to bring a cause of action, you know, for a shipper. And if, if BOE doesn't, then then Congress will. Congressman John Garamendi and Congressman Johnson will through their act, which has got 66 co-sponsors. What does their act do, just broadly? It imposes new requirements to certify and explain and make more transparent these demerge and detention charges and invoices. Another thing that it does, which is which is really interesting, it, it imposes new obligations for the carriers to furnish the facilities and instrumentalities to perform their services, including containers. So, you know, as a consumer, you think they're going to get your stuff to you in, say, Peoria, Illinois, from L.A. Long Beach. But so the carrier, you know, they've kind of spun off everything after the port, except for these end-to-end products, which I was talking about earlier. So as I mentioned, it's like a huge problem is that the containers are just all in the wrong places, right? And the chassis are in the wrong places, or there aren't enough of them. And the carriers are saying, well, that's not my fault. You know, sorry, you know, you know, there have been reports that the carriers are sending back empty containers westbound to China because they can make 10 or 20 or, or more, $20,000 a box on that eastbound import, whereas before they were sending it westbound to make a little extra money, they were sending it westbound with the farmer's agricultural products. Now it's just not going to the inland at all. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of anger there. But, you know, they, they can disclaim the obligation to provide the container and the chassis. 
if the act goes through, you know, that language to me looks like it puts the onus back on the ocean carrier to make sure that box is available, make sure that chassis is available. And that, that's a huge change. And transparency into merge is a huge change. And it also has other things that it does that provides new weapons to the commission to make them more robust. You know, for example, uh, you know, has new uh, compensation rules that allows the, the commission to prosecute or, you know, pursue refunds on behalf of shippers who may not be willing to bring the causes of action. What about truckers? Is it easier? Is that an easier cause of action because you're not involved with the Maritime Commission? Well, you know, it, it kind of depends on what your contract looks like with your trucker. Again, a lot, I think a lot of shippers, there's a scarcity of truckers as well, you know, particularly, you know, who are in the drage segment, which is what we're really talking about. And so, again, they're disinclined to drag their trucker into court who can just say, you know, I'm not going to deal with you anymore. And who, where are they going to go? But, you know, they can bring causes of action against them. But what I've seen a lot is that, you know, the, the, the trucking contracts typically say, um, here are the conditions of service. And then underneath that, there for each move, there's like an offer and acceptance. There's a task order, you know, and often they will have two or three dredge providers. And so the shipper, Wawa, right, they will say, um, okay, you know, I, I have a box that needs to be from A to B. And then the, the, the trucker can accept it or not. And so what the truckers are saying now is, you know, we just don't have the capacity. So if you've got two or three and both of them are rolling, you know, saying I can't take that load, how do you really go, how do you proceed against them for breach? Unless, you know, you have a particular commitment that they're not meeting, then you can go after them, you know, in terms of volume. My guess is that, that the truckers are meeting that volume because nobody foresaw what the volume would be. So it's not that they aren't meeting their commitments. It's just that the demand is higher than it used to be. And one of the things that's really interesting that I've seen is that, this, you know, say a, a shipper, you know, like a big box store with a lot of power, so they have capacity commitments from the ocean carriers that say, you have to give me however many boxes I need on a rolling, say, eight-week basis. So those guys have that. But then, you know, your small 400 boxes, 40 boxes a year importer, say like this West Coast furniture importer, that guy doesn't have that. You know, he's got something that says you get your whatever you, you want you were going to pay for, your 400 boxes. So you see what happens is that the big box stores, they keep eating more and more commitment. And I, and I mean to put it on the big box stores. I just mean, you know, anybody who has that kind of market power with the ocean carriers because there's a fixed supply of vessel space. So they keep eating more, and it rolls downhill. And a lot of, and I've seen carriers just walk out on contracts, just say, I'm not going to give you your minimum quantity commitment, or what they call MQC. I'm not going to give you your boxes, little guy, because I don't have to. And those guys bring actions. And, you know, typically, you know, the ocean carriers are making so much money that they just settle them. It's cheaper to walk out on that than to than disappoint the big box store or, the, you know, the big, the big customer. Thanks, Brian. That's Brian Gardner, a partner at Winston & Strawn. Unicolors was before the Supreme Court, arguing that the Ninth Circuit wrongly nixed a copyright infringement win against designer H&M. And several Supreme Court justices appeared skeptical of the Ninth Circuit's interpretation of when a copyright registration should be invalidated for errors. Joining me is an expert in intellectual property law, Shambhal Ganesh, a professor at Columbia Law School. Unicolors sued H&M in federal court. Explain what the lawsuit was about and what happened. So, so the lawsuit itself was fairly straightforward. Unicolors is obviously a company that manufactures and sells designs of fabric. And uh, it had registered a whole bunch of different designs, and it sued H&M for copying one of its designs uh, in federal court. And um, in the actual, at the actual trial, the jury concluded that there was, in fact, infringement 
and awarded Unicolors a significant uh, award of, of damages. And then what happened at the end of the trial, H&M discovered that Unicolors, when it had applied for its copyright registration, had made an error, had submitted inaccurate information to the Copyright Office. And under a provision known as Section 411 of the Copyright Statute, it allows the certificate of registration to be invalidated, and that's what the whole litigation is about, if there was inaccurate information that was included on the application for registration with the knowledge that it was inaccurate. Okay? And so the district court found, however, that there was no knowledge of this inaccuracy, and it continues to find and it found for Unicolors and affirmed the jury award. And I think there was a reduction in the jury award, but it awards the damages to Unicolor and also awards attorney's fees, reasonable costs. Then what happens, the matter gets appealed to the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit interprets that requirement of inaccurate information and knowledge to conclude that based on the, on the lower court's factual record itself and its own interpretation of the inaccuracy, that all that was needed for the invalidation of the copyright registration was that Unicolors should have known about a factual inaccuracy on the registration uh, information that was submitted. And since that was unambiguously shown on the trial record, its registration was invalidated and it would not succeed. And that's the, the, the narrow question on which the Supreme Court took this petition, took this case, was to determine what kind of knowledge there needed to be in order to invalidate a copyright registration for inaccurate information. So whether Unicolor committed fraud in filing the application? Well, so um, in, in technical terms, yes, but not fraud. That's not the legal term that's used. Uh, they did use it occasionally. It basically, a little bit of background, in 2008, Congress makes a change to the copyright statute to introduce this standard for invalidating a copyright uh, registration for inaccuracy. And it, it codifies this age-old doctrine that is known as fraud on the Copyright Office, uh, which is about giving the Copyright Office uh, um, improper information, inaccurate information, in order to get a copyright registration. But the statute itself doesn't talk about fraud. And so the, the whole question technically was about what kind of knowledge Unicolors needed to have had for this invalidation to happen. And Unicolors makes the argument that, you know, while we did present inaccuracy um, on, on the underlying facts, namely on whether all of the registrations, and if you want, I'll, I'll talk about the, the group registration, which was another wrinkle in complexity, making this even more technical. But Unicolor says there was an inaccuracy, yes, on the facts. However, the legal standard that applies to those facts is what rendered it inaccurate. In other words, the inaccuracy emanates not just from the underlying facts, but from the standard for registrability which has remained ambiguous, and we don't have any clear interpretation until the Ninth Circuit took a particular position on it. And so we did not know when we submitted the registration that we were inaccurate as a matter of law, and you should apply the standard to mean an inaccuracy on the legal application of the standard to the facts, and therefore you should not invalidate our registration. What was the main topic or what was the concern of the justices during oral arguments? So I think a couple of things. First, trying to figure out what exactly the parties' dis dispute and disagreement was in terms of their standard of knowledge. 
what exactly each party meant by its sense of knowledge. Was it going to be actual knowledge? Was it subjective knowledge? And really a focus on the difference between knowledge of the underlying facts and knowledge of the legal standard as applied to that fact, which renders it an inaccuracy in application. Right? I think that was the principal concern of the justices. And in some sense, most of the questions really turned on statutory interpretation. I think one of the unambiguous things coming out of today's oral argument was that this is going to be a case about statutory interpretation, where there is going to be agreement that there is a knowledge requirement in the statute based on the plain meaning. But the second question is going to be, what is that knowledge relating to? Is it just knowledge of the underlying facts, like the Ninth Circuit said? Or is it knowledge of the legal standard as applied to the facts, namely knowledge of the legal interpretation to render something an inaccuracy along the lines of what Unicolor is asking for? And I think that's, that was one of the main uh, takeaways. The second one was uh, a sense in which how to approach the question of knowledge, whether you should look exclusively at the other parts of the copyright statute, which use the word knowledge and have other kinds of C-inter requirements, or whether you should look at other statutes that have similar usages of the word knowledge. I think especially when H&M's lawyer argued, there was a lot of back and forth in trying to compare the knowledge requirement under this section to some of the court's prior jurisprudence on knowledge to, to, to slice and dice how there may be uh, some differences. Another question that came up not quite as central as one might have initially predicted was this issue with copyright trolls, which H&M had made an issue of in its brief, basically accusing Unicolors of being a copyright troll. So tell us what a copyright troll is. Copyright troll, at least as not a technical legal term, but it's used pejoratively, no doubt, to refer to a copyright plaintiff who doesn't have a real interest in the underlying creativity that copyright is meant to promote, but whose business model is really built around copyright litigation and, and sort of uh, generating licensing fees after threats to litigate. Right? And so H&M was trying to make the argument that uh, you want a lower standard of knowledge so as to not encourage copyright trolls to file frivolous lawsuits. Uh, I think a couple of justices asked that question. Justice Sotomayor began with that question, and then Justice Breyer uh, really uh, pushed on it in oral argument. And, and I think one of the revelations was the justices didn't really see the copyright troll issue to be a major issue, because under Unicolor's argument about inaccuracy needing to be inaccuracy relating to the legal standard, at least Justice Breyer's argument was, well, copyright trolls tend to be pretty legally sophisticated, so they wouldn't be able to satisfy that burden, so having a higher threshold is really not going to feed into uh, copyright trolls. So I guess if I were to just summarize it, the, the core takeaway from the argu argument today was that it was going to be about statutory interpretation, trying to figure out what knowledge means in this particular domain, and, and really trying to figure out whether that knowledge word and meaning is something specific to the copyright statute or whether it can draw parallels to other statutes that use uh, the similar terminology in different contexts. There are several justices who are textualists on the court. Did you see any division between the textualists and the other justices as to how they look at the statute? I actually did not. And I'm not surprised by that, to be honest. I, I think all of the justices agreed that the text says something, but that the text is not clear. Right. I think where you would see this kind of disagreement would be in a case like Star Athletica, which had to do with the cheerleader uniforms and definition of uh, design of a useful article. I think what you, you had here was a recognition 
that the text uses the word knowledge. No one was denying that. Then the second order question was simply how you interpret the word knowledge that is embedded in the text. And there, I think there wasn't the sense that the, the language is plain and unambiguously clear, that you needed to go beyond the text itself to try and understand the context in which Congress used this word in 2008 and the context against which, you know, other statutes that Congress had enacted this. So I did not see that uh, textualist, non-textualist division. And to be very honest, and I think part of it is even the justices who are not self-identified textualists recognize that they have to begin a question of statutory interpretation with the text of the statute, right? So it's not as though the non-textualists don't pay attention to the statute. So everyone agrees that you begin with the statute here. The question is, what additional components do you use to add meaning to the statute? And I think that's where, to the extent we see some potential disagreement, it may come in in terms of the sources for interpreting the, that second-order question of what knowledge means. But I also wanted to add, I don't think I'm surprised by this, because one of the things we have started seeing in the Roberts Court where there's a lot of disagreement around substantive major core copyright issues. So, for example, Oracle versus Google, a split decision, or even the one before that PRO, State of Georgia versus public.resource.org, we saw a, a splinter decision. In contrast to that, on copyright decisions that deal with the administrative, the remedial, or the procedural side of the system, there's been a significant amount of unanimity in the, on the court. Granted, this is sort of a first for the court because it's the first time Justice Barrett has been participating in a copyright decision, so it remains to be seen what role she plays uh, in it, because remember, she was not part of the decision in uh, Oracle versus Google. And with the replacement of, of Justice Ginsburg, it'll be interesting to see what the dynamic is. But before that, the unambiguous reality was that the court's procedural and remedial and administrative opinions in copyright generated a significant amount of unanimity. And that would be in keeping with the trend that we saw at today's oral argument. How do you think the justices will rule here? So they were very favorably predisposed, based on the oral argument, to the Solicitor General's argument. The government intervened basically on the side of unicolors, saying that the Ninth Circuit's approach, saying that all you needed was knowledge of the underlying facts, and even if you misinterpreted the law because the law was unclear, that does not protect you. That is, they basically said that that was a path-breaking, unprecedented opinion that needed to be changed. And I think the justices who were quizzing a government's lawyer seemed favorably predisposed towards that argument. So I think that the court will come out saying that Unicolor's position is the more preferable one. It does not feed into the phenomenon of copyright trolls. The standard for invalidating a copyright registration is that the inaccuracy must have been included with the knowledge that the legal standard as applied to the fact was in fact inaccurate. In other words, it's not just enough if you know of the underlying facts, you have to know that as you interpreted the underlying facts, you were representing an inaccuracy to the Copyright Office. That's the way in which I think the court's going to come out rather than uh, on the other side. I think principally because there's, there's also an underlying policy concern here, which is um, Congress and the court, did, a couple of justices did voice this, you don't want a standard that makes it very easy to have a copyright registration invalidated. Uh, the flip side of the copyright troll situation would be where every defendant who is sued for copyright infringement basically goes and digs around to find some minor inaccuracy in the copyright registration and then goes back to court saying, hey, look, I found an inaccuracy. Uh, as long as we are able to show some level of knowledge connected to that factual inaccuracy, let's invalidate the registration and not allow the lawsuit to go forward. I think that's also a concern. 
because the idea behind the registration is to, to not have it be an impediment to having uh, creators go into court to sue for copyright infringement. It shouldn't be a, an easy get-out-of-jail-free pass. And I think the justices were, in my view, uh, seemingly convinced by that concern. That's Professor Sham Balganesh of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.